Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art, where we bring you a new story about your world in every episode. On today's show, we talk to filmmaker and writer Lolisa Medina, a journalist-turned-visual artist who documents marginalized histories and explores the questions of place, home, and belonging. We'll talk about how her journey led her to create visual art that's been showcased all around the world and how an upcoming World AIDS Day project will soon feature her work in major cities throughout the United States. Thank you for following the Jesse Garcia Show, now on Threads, Facebook, and Instagram. For more information about the podcast, visit jessegarciashow.com. On December 1st, World AIDS Day turns 35. According to the World Health Organization, this global epidemic has claimed more than 40 million lives. Last year, an estimated 630,000 people across the globe died from HIV-related causes. As in the early days of the AIDS crisis, activists and artists were at the forefront sounding the alarm, calling out government inaction, and demanding life-saving drugs. Today, activists and artists are still protesting and raising awareness about HIV and trying to reach new generations of people to learn about and protect themselves from the disease that still ravages marginalized communities in greater numbers. Today's guest, Dolisa Medina, will be showcasing an upcoming art project commissioned by Visual Aids of New York and will premiere on World AIDS Day, A Day Without Art 2023, in more than 150 venues all over the world. Dolisa saw AIDS spread in real time back in the 1980s when she was just a teenager. Her family, from the border town of Brownsville, Texas, along the U.S.-Mexico border, had a young cousin who contracted HIV and developed full-blown AIDS shortly thereafter. Sadly, she saw how the disease would deteriorate his young body. This traumatic memory would inspire her art project that's being released next week. Dolisa and I both attended the same high school in Brownsville and graduated the same year in 1989. While many of us saw the AIDS crisis unfolding on television and thought it was something that only happened in big cities, Dolisa quietly mourned the loss of a family member due to AIDS. Back in high school, Dolisa was a smart young woman who ran the school newspaper. During my senior year, I joined the staff of the Screaming Eagle, and I was taught how to write a lead sentence by Dolisa. I yearned for her approval because she was not only smart, but she was this alternative goddess that oozed coolness and was respected by her peers. While other teen girls at Hannah High School craved the neon spotlight, Dolisa was fine thriving in her low-key alternative world of poetry, music, literature, and print journalism. After graduation, Dolisa left our border town and headed west to earn a BA in journalism from San Francisco State University and a master's in fine arts in visual art from University of California, San Diego. Dolisa traveled the world, which opened her eyes to life outside of print journalism. Dolisa would eventually pick up a camera and begin her passion of experimental documentaries which blends journalism, folklore, and essay forms. Her work has been screened at venues including the Whitney Museum of American Art, Rotterdam International Film Festival, 
and Palacio de Bellas Artes in Mexico City. As a Fulbright Scholar, she has received support from the San Francisco Arts Commission, eBay Foundation, and others. Her writing has appeared in Film Quarterly and The Moving Image. Over the last 20 years, she's worked with a variety of youth mentorship programs and organizations, but her next project will combine community and art in a very special way for World AIDS Day. Now let's hear about that special project that's coming to a screen near you. I want to welcome to the show a very dear friend of mine from high school who grew up to be a major multimedia artist, Dolisa Medina. Hi, Jesse. Hi there. So when I first met you in high school, you were an amazing newspaper editor. When did you decide to go beyond print journalism and film documentaries? Well, I think that I had always wanted to be a filmmaker. I loved the movies. I was a big fan, um, maybe maybe like many of us growing up with, you know, all those blockbusters and kind of big epic films. I was kind of a film nerd. I, I even remember liking the Ten Commandments every year when it would come out on TV. Um, and so, yeah, I always wanted to make films, but I didn't really you know, have the means. I think if you can recall in the 1980s, like media making was very expensive. And just to have like one of these big- A um, camcorder. Yeah, camcorders was pretty much out of our, our parents' price range. My parents' price range. We did, I uh, think I got my hands on one one time and we went to, um, you know, HEB and just did a bunch of goofing goofing around. But, but yeah, I would say that for most of the 90s, uh, after graduating, I did pursue journalism uh, first in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And then I moved to San Francisco, my dream city. And I stayed there for a good 20 years. And it was in San Francisco that I sort of finished up my journalism kind of training and then also discovered that I was an artist and so um, throughout the 90s I had always also wanted to be a, a filmmaker and um, I had friends that were filmmakers and so I think I still kind of like exotified it a little bit I didn't quite know how, how that was possible for me um, but fortunately uh, around 2000 the year 2000 1999 I applied for a, uh, a grant called the Stand Grant from the Film Arts Foundation, which is a, a film organization in San Francisco, sadly now de defunct. Um, and it was for, uh, it, I think it stood for something like something training and access for new directors. So it was, I got a mentor and I made, I was able to to shoot my first film. I took classes and um, and I did a f film called Grounds. And it was about based on like my my grandmother's, uh, my great grandmother's sort of story of coming to uh, Texas during the Mexican Revolution. And it was just a way to explore family history and memory. Um, I cut it on film, which is really fantastic. So just even a, being able to handle 16 millimeter, beautiful film. And uh, yeah, and then over time, so that then I just never looked back. Now, uh, I did still continue to do journalism and but kind of going back and forth. But uh, I over I did become I was a newspaper editor in um, in San Francisco in in the the, the Mission District uh, kind of for community citizen journalism and so I was doing that I was working with uh, youth with uh, journalism youth in, in San Francisco State University so I never a hundred percent left journalism I think I just sort of expanded what uh, I how I wanted to be able to tell stories and and I think journalism and for you're me. I'm sorry. You were able to use your journalism job to help fund your 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 filmmaking. 
No, <laughs> there was not much yeah. of a journalism job. I had a very different kind <laughs> of, <laughs> you know, it's funny because like I, I was all prepped. I mean, you know, I had been doing journalism since, you know, I was practically a teenager. I got journalism scholarships. I went to this really good J school. I got trained. I was an editor. I had all these things. And then something very funny happened. I burned out. I was almost like I had been doing journalism for so long that by the time it was time to graduate and actually have a, you know, ha have that sort of life, I got a little bit uh, frustrated. I wasn't quite, I was, I was a little bit, yeah, like I said, just burnt out on the whole thing. Um, I had had an opportunity to work at the Oakland Tribune and I had also, it was kind of interesting because around that time, I think I also was interested in other things such as poetry and creative writing. And um, there was one summer where I was offered a, a, an internship at the San Francisco Examiner and, and I turned it down so that I could do a poetry workshop in Berkeley. And then I think I got another call and some, and it was another newspaper and they were offering me a position. And I said, whoa, this is the universe really testing me because I very clearly don't think I will be happy continuing to pursue this kind of, you know, intense, a lot of it too was very much about like intense investigative um, sort of reporting. And I wasn't really about that. I was much more about features and, and sort of spotlighting human interest stories. And perhaps that's where some of my, the, the way I like to approach storytelling and documentary kind of comes into it. So um, I just led a very bohemian life, uh, just sort of working in, in theaters uh, doing a lot of um, jobs as uh, what's it called publicity, you know, for for an art gallery, Galleria de la Raza in San Francisco. So through that, I, I was you know able, like I said, I got um, some some grants to make my short films, and a lot of them are just short experimental. So the way I work, I work as a filmmaker is I don't necessarily, I mean, tradition. I've been making films for twenty years, but traditionally I fall under the experimental category. So my work hasn't necessarily shown in big venues or like broadcast venues such as PBS. They mostly show in film festivals or art galleries or museum spaces. And um, it's very rare that I'll make money from it, right? But if I can get funded through through a grant or through, uh, you know, like I said, some kind of fellowship, then that's how I do it. Lots of times in my early um, part as a, my early life as a filmmaker, I was working a lot with found footage. So it's a kind of like collage filmmaking. And so you'll take previously exactly. yeah, previously existing footage, which is now you see it a lot on YouTube, but at the time it was like less common. And so it's kind of just sort of like cutting and pasting a lot of these images to recontextualize the image then to, to make a statement about like society or something. So I, I did make, I made, yeah. So I made a short film about Selena using a lot of Selena news footage. I made it an award-winning film um, called 19 Victoria, Texas about the 19 immigrants who died in Victoria who were smuggled in the truck. You may remember that I think around um, 2015. And a, an interesting thing happened, which was uh, a, a like a, a critic, a scholar critic in, in Barcelona told me that my this short film that I made about the, um, the 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 migrants who died. She said this was almost like the perfect news package, but it was like an art. It was like you were presenting the information as if it was a news package, but it was it was very short. It was about two or three minutes. But the images, it was more, it was an experience. It was very different from the way you would see the news. And it's, so I do kind of think of myself as using the elements of journalism, but in a much more experimental way. And it gives me the freedom, whereas if I were strictly a journalist, I would have to stick to certain kinds of ethics. And I think that's important, but, and I'm still interested in the truth and in facts, but it's about the way that I present the the, the story that I just think is, is has a lot more, um, 
freedom within like the art world and the film world than necessarily the, the straight up journalism world. You're a storyteller, a gifted so storyteller. So how many stories have you, films, documentaries have you made over your career? Yeah, I would say maybe over 20 years, maybe like 10. So yeah, uh, the so. longest, has the longest. So they're all like mostly short films. They were between like two, three and, and 10 minutes. Uh, but uh, the longest film that I did was about 45 minutes long. It was in 2006 for um, the 100th anniversary of the San Francisco earthquake and fire. And oh, yeah. That, yeah, and that was a, a film I did call, which was great because I got support from the San Francisco Arts Commission. I got funding from FEMA, believe it or not, um, yeah. Federal Emergency Management Agency. And I, I was really able to pull together this interesting coalition of funders and supporters to produce a 45 minute film that mapped the city of San Francisco uh, with forgotten stories about the earthquake from 1906. And I drew from many types of storytelling, whether it was journalism, oral history, folklore and mythology, um, or I think just straight up like interviewing people or, you know, um, I kind of put those all together in this kind of a thousand and one Arabian Nights kind of yeah. storytelling. And so we had little chapters and then we projected it onto the side of a fire station and, uh, and a lot of people showed up and it was like a free event. And so that was a really nice, it was kind of the culmination of, of a lot of hard work. And I kind of feel like I haven't worked that hard on a project. And now is the new film that I, I feel like I've also been working like a, a really a lot on that too. So. so tell me what motivated you to make El Viejito Enfermito Grito? Sure. Um, well, uh, Viejito Enfermito Grito is a, it comes from a bigger project that I've been working on for many years, been struggling with a little bit. It's a feature length documentary about coming of age and coming out in Brownsville in the in in the 80s, right? And and so it's been it's been a challenge. But uh part of the story includes um uh have you know of course being in the closet but also a a character who was a cousin of mine who passed away from HIV AIDS. And I have a very clear memory of him uh in, in 1980 Eight, uh, what is it, 85, 86, I believe, um, when he came back to visit, uh, he was walking with a cane and he was very young. He was like 25 years old, but yet he he was he he was like an old man. And so at a certain moment, I kind of made this, I guess, like poetic connection or realization between sort of this idea of young bodies made old before their time. And and the the Danza de los Viejitos, where it's often young bodies doing these gestures and movements of old people. And when I was a kid, those those little uh, viejitos in the Charo Days Parade that you you and I will remember we went to and performed. Yes, and I love those. It is iconic uh, choreography, dance, presentation that comes down the street on Elizabeth Street. And it in it, you have all your bands and then you'll have all your drill team. But this dance is so unique because it it gives you something that you've, ne you know, like you said, young people dressed up as old people doing this beautiful dance, all this culture being thrown at you. And you're trying to say, like, what's going on here? <laughs> oh, definitely. And it's like it's, I've come to learn more about it. And it's quite interesting. And so, you know, when I was a kid, the viejitos scared me. They really terrified me. And I think they represent the mask on like the mask. Yeah, yeah. the mask. 
And yeah. and if you think about it, like sadly, that kind of mask or that look of, of the gaunt face is what we saw a lot on the TV in the 1980s of people who were suffering from, from AIDS. And so um, it's kind of this, I, I'm trying to make this kind of creative leap of, re, of interpreting this dance from this perspective and kind of using that figure to explore those histories. Uh, yeah. So but, that's why- but, I want to- uh, mentioned that growing up, both of you growing up in the 80s and learning about LGBT stuff, the only thing that we saw on TV growing up was people dying of AIDS. Yeah. So it kind of pushed me back in the closet. I didn't come out until the like early 90s. I never thought in my, my whole, you know, in my wildest dreams that I'd be an openly gay man because of this disease that was just wreaking havoc. Government wasn't doing anything about it. The artists were the ones that were really, the activists and artists were the ones that were talking about how medication was needed, cures were needed, the government needed to move faster. And just the fact that the only images that were seen on TV about LGBT people were just people in with sores, gaunt faces, in hospital gowns. I mean, because you would just hear the the six o'clock report at night about the the rising rising toll of AIDS in the United States. And it just made me scared as a as a gay kid. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think for a lot of us, it was the defining for the queer kids of the 80s, like Generation X, like that was our defining sort of um, experience. It was a lot of fear. It was a lot of shame. It was a lot of silence and isolation. And I felt very isolated too. Um, I think also losing my cousin, but not really talking about it to anybody or, you know, just sort of having to, to, to recognize that passing in this kind of space of silence was very difficult for me. And I'm realizing it actually stayed with me for many, many years. And so making this feature documentary at some point uh, will, you know, be a way to explore that and bigger issues around the city of Brownsville. Uh, however, uh, at the moment, we have just taken that one image to make a short film about it with a, a friend of mine who has been living with HIV for 30 years. And so the the birth of the viejito idea came from this feature documentary, not yet done, but now it's actually expanding into something that I think is much uh, more, I don't know how to explain it, but I think it's, um, it's very exciting because it's something that I think is really gonna engage people in the community. Uh, again, like you said, using the arts to make people aware about uh, you know HIV, AIDS, um, the, so what we've done in terms of this film is we've been uh, commissioned by the nonprofit uh, in New York called Visual AIDS, and they work with artists with HIV. And they were the ones who actually instigated this, this uh, day called Day Without Art. And, and Day Without Art began in the late 80s, I believe, um, as, as sort of to coincide with World AIDS Day around December 1st. And it was a way to recognize like all these artists who were who were dying and who all the great art that we were going to not be able to experience right through this tragedy and that the government needed to, to do action. So it was a day of mourning, a day of action. And um, many arts institutions did things such as you know, cover a, a gallery full, you know, like all the paintings in a gallery, they put a shroud over the painting. So, you know, or I think, I think possibly when you, um, so anyway, that's like one example. So, and this happened uh, in New York and elsewhere. So flash forward 30 years later, I guess maybe even 40, you know, like AIDS is not over. There's still, even though it's not a death sentence, um, people like high rates are still happening. And especially, sadly, I've noticed in where we come from, there is still like a lot of um, transmission of HIV among like, like, 
you know, brown communities. And it's very frustrating yes. that, you know, history is camp it's repeating, you know. Repeating itself. And I want to share some for our listeners. The CDC statistics as of 2019, H- HIV, AIDS, and Hispanic Americans, they've listed Hispanic Americans accounted for almost 30% of all H- HIV infections in 2019. And that's 30%. And we're just less than 20% of the U.S. population. Hispanic males are four times as likely to have either HIV infection or AIDS as compared to their white counterparts. And Hispanic females were four times as likely to have AIDS in 2019 as compared to their white counterparts. And sadly, Hispanic men are twice as likely as non-Hispanic white men uh, to die of HIV infection. And Hispanic women are three times as likely to die from HIV infection compared to their non-Hispanic white um, counterparts. This conversation needs to continue. I completely agree. And that is a big reason why I'm I'm very proud to to have finished this film again with with my longtime friend, my friend who has been, you know, living uh and he so the film, like I said, it, it what we do is we do explore how for him HIV made him an old man before his time. He was he was diagnosed when he was in his 20s. And now he he's in you know in his fifties and he um, ha- kind of talks about how HIV made him a viejito and you know before before his time so he he dances the dance of the viejito the traditional dance and then we move on to you know part two and part three the enfermito part and the grito part so he explores in his body what how it is you know the taking of the pills the different uh, sort of illnesses. And then in the third part, it's how he goes through a journey of self-healing to then look outwards and become like a community healer, the grito, so so to speak. Your film is going to make an impact on World AIDS Day. I mean, all over the planet. I went to the website and it's going to be shown in almost in every continent. Um, There's going to be places throughout the United States where people can catch a screening, correct? That's correct. And I am very proud and excited that in our hometown, we've been able to arrange for three screenings. One and, and you know, in South Texas, where, again, a lot of the, the community needs to be made aware. And we're also having a cross-border screening uh, in, in Mexico, too, at our, with our sister Amazing. city. Yeah, Amazing. so that's, it's, it's, it's really nice to, to see that, that visibility and, and presence happening. So, You plan to make an impact beyond the documentary by sharing its message with an LGBTQ, LGBTQ youth group in our hometown of Brownsville, uh, what will be shared with the youth? Well, sure. Like I said, Grito Viejito started off, like I said, with just me and my friend working to explore what it means for to this this figure, the Viejito, right? And we want to look at it from the perspective of HIV histories. However, there are many new versions, new iterations of it. And so the the film that we made was just the first version. Eventually, we want to grow our artist collective to include other queer brown folk because the viejito figure can be a container to explore many different things. For example, aging. How do we just in general see aging? How do we think about health? How do we look at um, sort of ageism? And I think when it comes to working with youth, especially queer youth, it's, I think, I'm curious to bring it back to our hometown where this dance is very familiar and uh, use it as a way to to explore how we think of ourselves in the future, how we think of ourselves as elders and old people and how, how what that kind of imagining of our queer futures, what it might do in terms of helping us make 
or you know, helping everybody, but especially helping younger people make healthier choices, you know, harm reduction kind of stuff. And so I'm, I'm in the process of just beginning to develop this part of the program. And mm -hmm. it'll probably take like a full year. I want, I'm beginning to, to collaborate with the, the Valley AIDS Council uh, in South Texas. And so we're, we're just beginning um, to, to again, uh, we finished the film, we had a fundraiser so we could finish the film and now we're raising funds to begin to launch the project, which will be very nice because I think it's also gonna include a lot of like wisdom and knowledge of like just the, what the, the viejito tradition is coming from the Pura Pecha people in Michoacan. And so we're, we're beginning to have conversations with two spirit and just looking at kind of um, indigenous ways of, of, of like community and health family. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things to unpack. And and I, like, I also want to listen to where the youth want to go with it. And and but I can imagine like, we might do TikTok style videos, you know, fit, like we might make our own costumes, our own mask, we will, you know, have writing workshops. And so it's just this like ongoing project that I want to prototype, because eventually, the project could then travel to other communities and each community could have their own grito viejito sort of component that as long as you're committed to kind of intergenerational dialogue and health and community building, if you stick to certain kind of principles that we develop, then, you know, you could also have like your own sort of um, chapter and, and it kind of becomes like a, a communal thing. Because again, a folk dance is something that we, you know, how do we reinterpret it in a way that's respectful to it where it came from, but also in a way that, you know, often as, as, as these forms, these folk forms are, they are reinterpreted and have different sort of, even, you know, the, the it's been reinterpreted in Brownsville in our hometown, right? You know, many of us don't even know that history. So it's kind of like bringing awareness to people in Brownsville, like about the history of the dance, and then also reinterpreting it to, to bring health to the community. Yeah. I just hope that this group, um, that you attract these students that are going to be inspired by you and possibly follow your footsteps because it just be wonderful that it just explodes into creating all these wonderful people that get to be involved in media and art and, and advocacy in their adulthood. So I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. That's the hope because, you know, we didn't have as much of that when we were in high school, we didn't have access to media equipment or to, you know, just like, just like really good art classes. And I think that just by having a lot more community artists now and just a lot more resources, it's, it's again, it's just giving people permission to, to creatively explore. And there's a lot more of that happening right now in the Valley. And I'm very happy to see that, that there's a lot of opportunities for young creative people to be expressing themselves down there, even a film festival. Why do you think it's important to have these conversations with youth? Well, and I think one of the reasons it's important to have these conversations with, with like youth uh, is because in lots of ways, um, intergenerational dialogue is really important. And I think there is still, sadly, what I am noticing until, uh, despite all of the advances, there's still a lot of shame and silence. And um, I think that, for us, we lost a lot of the people who would have been our mentors. That we lost a lot of that history. Yes. We were a lot more isolated and scared, and we didn't have a way forward, right? And I think that there's wisdom that that would have come from all of those people that we lost. And so I think, and even for us, like even for ourselves, like you know, us being in the closet, we maybe didn't even talk about it with one another. Right. And so it's kind of that I, I'm just really interested in breaking, breaking that silence. And so that if, if there are if we are that bridge generation, like Generation X, who remembers some of this. 
right? Who, but who's seeing history repeating itself, sadly, you know, there's a way that like we can begin having those conversations and being available as mentors or being able to transmit some of that history and be the bridge between the people that we lost and, and, and this next generation that sort of is, like I said, it's not a death sentence, but still like there's no reason why they should be you know, be getting positive. And, and those are, and we, we, we want people to stay healthy and to, to keep healthy and to, to contribute and to society and, and live long lives. And so that's the kind of thing that I feel that if this, pro this project can help facilitate that, then that would be really, that would be, I know that I would have made a difference because I, it makes me sad. Like I met this young lesbian recently when I was in Brownsville and she says, yeah, I just feel really ugly. And I, I just couldn't believe it. Like after 30 years, like she's saying the exact same thing that I felt when I was that, when I was that, I was like, I felt ugly for being queer. And I'm like, no, like you have so many, so much visual representation of yourself now on, on everywhere. You could just Google, you could YouTube two girls kissing. That's amazing. Like, you know, how hungry we were for those images. And, and, but yet despite everything, you know, again, there's always a backlash, right? Like political environment and stuff. It's just, it's still, it's still, there's just still a lot of support that's needed because yeah, folks are killing themselves and, and it's, it is a matter of life and death and it is a matter of health and mental health and all that kind of stuff. So, so that's why I kind of feel like if there's something that we can do to just to kind of do that. And also like we can learn too. I just, I think it's important, like intergenerational dialogue goes both ways. And I think it helps keep us sort of up to date with what's going on because like, you know, we're also trying to make sure that, yeah, again, history doesn't repeat itself. And so we can see kind of what's happening in the moment, then that back and forth exchange is really important. And, and hence, like, you know, we all can be like, the viejitos with the grito, you know, moving, moving forward, because we're all going to be a part of that future. And that's what I want Grito Viejito to do. I want us to be able to imagine that future together. Have you decided what your next film project will be? Um, well, I always have like multiple film projects kind of in, in the kind of in the kind of what's the word um, in the hopper, I guess. that's it. Hopper, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I, I would like to return to this feature documentary uh, where I, I do want to do more writing around it. It'll probably still take a couple of years before that's done. Um, I am in the research stage for a short documentary about a new um, forensics technique that's being uh, explored on the border that would identify uh, missing migrants but just based on like digital fingerprints it's kind of like That's a long wonderful idea yes yeah so there's a lot of like I said Brownsville is actually becoming even though I kind of for the longest time didn't want to go back home and I just thought oh it's kind of like you know I think I'm I'm actually realizing it's a very interesting place and and as an experimental filmmaker like you know on the border there's a lot of positive and negative things that are happening around experimentation and and so I'm just very interested in kind of seeing uh, where my art goes and, and using that the area to get inspired by what's happening there. So where can listeners learn more about your work? Well, uh, probably the best way to find out about my film, my past films, my current projects would be my uh, website, my artist website, which is just my name, dolisamedina.com. Uh, because I have a unique name, Delisa, luckily I just, I pop up if you just Google me on a lot of other places and websites, like I have a Wikipedia entry and things like that. So that's kind of nice. Um, the people can find out about my work and where my work is, is popping up. And, and then for like the day without art, 
uh, I'm not too sure if I if I could share that too. Uh, so so um, or that's another you know question. But we also oh. yeah. So that, so I have that um, that would be uh, DWA dot org or just look just google day without art and then you know just to put it put in a plug for the work the work that we're trying to do uh, with getting support from from community and hopefully your your listeners is that i, I do have a a, fun, a crowd funder that's that's kind of going on right now so that we can move to the next stage of the on project. indiegogo correct on, in, on indiegogo that's correct and the uh the uh sort of short address for that is igg.me slash at slash grito g-r-i-t-o and if you didn't get that or if it's complicated you can probably find it on my website too if you go to my website it'll see you'll see the first film it says the grito viejito project and then you can that's another way to click on that to to get the address and just to go directly to the uh to the to the supporting page so yeah so i hope folks are able to support delisa's effort to bring this type of art and experimentation and filmmaking and and just culture make that donation help this work happen we're helping out youth um opening up their minds to new ideas and i'm so happy that you're coming back to brownsville what days will you be in brownsville I will be there for three months. I'm really settling in. Uh, I, like I said, we premiered the film in, in the Valley and then I'll be uh, there working on all these different film projects, doing research and also uh, beginning. Charo days. Charo days. As, yeah, exactly. So I basically started with World AIDS Day as a way to raise awareness around like the thing. And then we, I think we might have a an encore presentation of the film, uh, my short film during Charo days. Do you know when the viejitos are dancing? So that's right. going to happen. Um, but yes, through February and um, what else? Now I'm now I'm slipping up. There was something I wanted to say about that though. Something about being around that was relevant. Oh, so so yes, like I said, this is a project that I want to be implementing and looking for support uh, towards the end of 2024 because it'll take us time to plan it. And but the the good news is is that as early as January. Uh, I will begin to meet a lot of the youth who are part of this this um, drop-in center, you know, uh, and we are. I'm going to be teaching them some basic uh, skills to be filmmakers, and so that's going to be a really nice way to get to know them, to get a feel for what they're looking for in terms of designing the program for them, getting a youth advisor also to help help me create you know, something that they'll, that'll really resonate for them. And, and then they get to learn about, about how to be a good filmmaker and how to, you know, tell their stories. And so, so that the work will begin, you know, early enough uh, in, in, in January. So that's why I'm there in January. And then I stick around until February for Chatter Days. Yeah. So I want to thank you so much for reconnecting with me and to sharing your art and your journey in life to try to make this world a little bit better. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. That was very, very nice of you to to invite me. And um, I'm really glad that you, you're doing the work that you're doing also. And I, I definitely enjoy listening to, your, to you know, the folks that you've got on to. Thank you so much. Thank you.